You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Jennifer Byrne, who is Professor of Molecular Oncology at the University of Sydney and the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney's West. In this episode, Jennifer and I speak about her role at the Children's Cancer Research Unit, her current research interests and her scientific career. In her research, Jennifer analyzes childhood and adult cancers at a molecular level, which involves working collaboratively with other researchers. In 2017, Professor Byrne was named in the international journal Nature's Top 10 People Who Mattered for her work in identifying research papers that could mislead researchers working on cancer treatments. Links to some of Professor Byrne's research papers and articles are provided in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Professor Jennifer Byrne. So, thank you for joining us. I thought we might start off with um, finding out more about your background in terms of what you studied at university, maybe studied in your undergraduate, your PhD, um, after leaving um, university. So... Um, what? Tell us more about your PH, your your undergraduate. Okay, thanks, Mark. Well, look, I went to the University of Queensland, and I did a Bachelor of Science there. And I think when I got to uni, I was just so excited to be at university and thrilled to be doing science. So I did a range of subjects, everything from sort of physical chemistry to animal behaviour. And as I went on, I really found that I loved the discipline of physiology. I loved the way that it integrates. Um, how the body works at a very sort of a broad scale, but also at a much smaller scale. So I think it was that capacity to integrate ideas that I loved about physiology. So that became my major. And I did a bit of biochemistry on the side. I did quite a lot of chemistry. I was pretty interested in chemistry, but it became difficult to actually combine chemistry and physiology at the time, just because of timetabling. So then I did a fourth year of study, I actually went overseas for a year, came back and did a fourth year of study, and I studied how the brain functionally reorganises in response to injury. Wow, that's yeah, reasonably it, specific. It was. Well, I think that came from physiology, and I was really fascinated by the brain. The brain seemed like it was a last frontier. We didn't know much about how the brain works. So you look at, you're talking like the physical aspects of the brain. No, or, more about yeah. how the brain um, functionally reorganises, because I was looking at very quick responses so there was no time for physical reorganization so if we saw changes in brain behavior it had to be because of the connections between the neurons in the brain oh, right that's so very... that was pretty cool yeah um, I enjoyed that but I think when I finished I felt like I wanted to probably learn some different kind of techniques and at the time molecular biology was starting to take off so this was in the 80s and so we, I guess why was it starting to take off in the 80s? I think because techniques existed to allow it to take off. That's something that's important in science. You have to have the, the toolbox that allows you to do things. And so the toolbox for molecular biology was started in the 70s, actually. Um, the capacity to work out the sequences of bases in DNA, that was kind of becoming a bit more mainstream. And so I think we realised the capacity that those techniques 
had. And I was pretty keen to get part of that revolution, I guess, at the time. So I switched fields and I learnt about molecular biology and genetics for my PhD. And and did you do your PhD in Australia or overseas? I did. I did my PhD um, also at the University of Queensland, but I went to a research institute that was associated with a hospital. And so I started working on cancer. Oh, yeah. And was that something that you kind of were wanting to work on or were you just assigned to it or yeah um well probably a couple of things my mother had been diagnosed with cancer when I was an undergraduate so I guess I had some exposure to cancer what it actually meant um but it was a little bit by chance I applied for a job in a laboratory that was studying cancer in children and at the time even though I knew about my mother getting cancer it was probably a a reasonably you know, she was in her early 40s, which is already quite young, but I, I knew that was unusual. I didn't have any clue that children got cancer, but of course they do. And I think it was that kind of feeling of, oh my God, like that's terribly unfair. Um, maybe that's something that I can study and contribute to mm. while learning these techniques that I think could be quite powerful. Yeah, and so I guess in terms of the techniques, what sort of like... I, I keep thinking of like centrifusion, that type of thing, or, you know, obviously it would involve some sort of technology, but I mean, can you give us an outline, just say one of these approaches without getting into too much nitty gritty? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned the um, technique of sequencing DNA, and that was something I did a lot of in my PhD. So the DNA contains a series of what we call bases, and it's the order of those bases that, that contains the information in our DNA. And so I did a lot of just sequencing a gene, taking pieces of DNA and working out the order of bases in that DNA. And it sounds it sounds pretty laborious, and it was, but essentially through that process you build up the picture of the gene and what it is doing or and what it can do. So that's probably, yeah, that was probably the thing that I did the most in my PhD, sequencing. And so... Um... I just want to go back to when you, before you'd started university, you'd, you'd studied science at high school, I'm imagining. Yes, yes, I had. And you had an interest in bio, biology or, you know. Yes, look, I was, I was very, um, I was fascinated by biology, I think, because I grew up on a cattle property. And, you know, I was really immersed in the natural world in that sense, you know, not only the animals that we had on the farm, but also the wildlife, the trees, the grasses, everything. I mean, you really, you're in an ecosystem when you grow up on the land. And I think that um, stimulated, I think, my interest in biology. And when I was very young, I wanted to be a wildlife scientist. But I think as I entered my teens, and apparently this is quite typical, you become more interested in people. And I actually knew a family who had a son who had haemophilia, and I could see the impact of that on the family. And I started to be interested in, you know, disease and whether perhaps, you know, I could study human diseases as opposed to, you know, the natural world. Or bovine diseases. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And what, I guess you, you would have, <clears throat> what sort of cattle did you raise? Uh, my father had beef cattle, so he, what, what? we had shorthorns. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So even that is a thing, you know, there's different types of cattle. That's right. They have right. different attributes, yes. different purposes. Yes, all that sort of stuff. Kind of like and life. you know. Yes, and I think that, you know, one of my earliest memories is actually my father um, butchering a sheep 
and pulling it apart and explaining, you know, what all the organs did. Wow. And, you know, I mean, you just, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you really see life and death a lot. You know, I used to see, you know, animals being born, animals dying. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah. just part of life. But I think it sort of stimulated my curiosity around those processes, perhaps. Yeah, that's not uh, such a typical... Uh, a typical youngster wouldn't be exposed no, to those No, sort of... no, no, it wasn't. It was a lot. I mean, it was interesting. I think one of my other memories was, you know, we used to drive to school on this bus and it was a really long way. But um, the bus driver, sometimes if we saw a wild pig with its piglets in the fields, he'd stop and allow us to get out and chase them. And that was the kind just, of thing we do on the Just for fun. Just like... for fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Wow. And so I guess, was that a thing, like, did you have to move away a long distance to, to attend university? And was that a, th a thing for the, you know, um, were you expected to kind of hang around or? No, no, my parents were pretty good, they were very good. Um, you know, I won a scholarship to go to boarding school. That was a, a big thing so that I could, you know, I went to school in the city. And um, I think my parents always realised I was going to do something a bit different I think they were probably quite worried about that. I think well, they, what, they, what do you mean worried about that? Well, I think like a lot of parents, they wanted me to have a stable job. They were very keen for me to do medicine, but I, I didn't want to do medicine. Why? Because, I mean, a lot of the things that you're talking about so far, they kind of strike me as being quite related to becoming a doctor or medicine. Yeah, that's true. But I think medicine is, you know, it's more about treating the sick and looking after people. And I was more interested in chasing new knowledge. I wow. Think. Yep. Right from the get-go. Yeah, a long time ago, yep. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm just looking to see what else your... Um, what was France like in terms of your postdoctoral studies? Well, look, France was, was great. Uh, a very different experience, both culturally and also scientifically, I think. I went to a very large institute, very multicultural, perhaps 50 nationalities there at any one time. Um, and... I think the way that science was done in a big institute was very eye-opening. So that was a great experience to go to a place where everything's there. It's a bit like doing science in a shopping centre. You know, you want something done, you go to the third floor, they'll do it for wow, you. Wow, you know? that's a system. So it was a lot of things were in-house and that could really speed things up and make things a lot easier and I really enjoyed that. Um, and I was there for three years and I actually got married while I was over there and then, you know, my husband and I decided to come back to Australia because I had funding here, and I think my husband was keen to give Australia a try as well. Yeah, I guess I, just as you were talking then, I kept thinking of a lot of the units of measure, etc., in science. So they're kind of based in, like the French have a significant role historically in terms of the development of research and science and culture as well. That's right. And um, I mean, I guess this kind of idea of this large university as well, it's kind of, it sounds as though science as a thing was quite valued as a, you know, it was, it was embedded and valued and... Yes, I think that's true. Um, I think that the French are obviously very proud of their cultural heritage and that does include science. And so it's great to, I mean, it, look, it was a fantastic environment to do science. I think it's a bit hard for me to know whether the average French person has a greater or lesser understanding of science than the average Australian. But certainly the French are very proud of their culture and their cultural heritage. Um, while I was there, they actually passed a law to say that no meeting, no, no meeting in France can be conducted in any other language than French. 
So we were, but we used to break that law all the time because we'd have seminars in English, but we would always sort of wink at each other and say we're breaking the law. I think that's an indication of the pride that they have in their language and their heritage. Mm. And, and did you learn, can you speak French? Yes, I can. Yeah. Wow. I, I really had to learn it to interact, interact effectively with my colleagues. Yeah. And then I guess, were you, did you have to write up your papers in English and French, or is it most? I mean, papers papers are in English. I did write one funding application in French towards the end, so I did have to write some things in French, but most things were in English. So we're going to find out more about your um, other research interests, but just before we kind of get there, well, how would you compare, say, the Australian attitude, if that's the word, to science and research, to say Europe? Is it? Because I think that. Australia has, um, you know, Australians have a lot of interest in science and that's indicated, I think, by the support that the public provide for research, um, the interest in science through, you know, television programs and radio programs. So there's a, there's a lot of interest in science. I think in Australia we also have a lot of interest in sport and sometimes there's that <laughs> bit of tension where... You know, maybe if scientists, if Australians were as interested in science as they are in sport, perhaps science would be better supported. It's a bit hard for me to comment on that from a so European broad, perspective because yeah. I haven't been there for a while. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think Australians have got, you know, we're very focused upon, um, you know, outdoor activities and sport and that sort of physical side of life, or at least that's our view of ourselves. Perhaps mm. that's less true today. I don't know. Um, but there is, there is certainly strong support in the community for science and a lot of interest from people. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we're going to find out more, a little bit more, about your um, current research or your current... Um, Interests, research interests. So what are you doing at the moment? Well, my team studies a few different things. We study the um, genetics of childhood cancer. So that's something that I've essentially you know, started doing in my PhD. And we're now using much bigger and better sequencing techniques to look at the kinds of mutations that childhood cancer patients, or at least a proportion of those patients, might have that might have led to their cancer diagnosis. So that's one quite important area of research that we're involved with. We study the cell biology of cancer cells. We're interested in how these cells store fat and whether that capacity might be able to be used to treat cancer. Why is is fat uh, significant in a a nutshell? In a nutshell, well, fat is often the forgotten component of cells. You know, cell biologists study the DNA which we do as well. The protein, you know, we hear a lot about protein in our diet and that's because cells are made of protein, but cells also store fat. And that's something that not as many people think about or study. And some cancer cells actually have a lot of fat stored in them. What, more than a regular cell? Yeah, yeah, and we don't really know why that is. And But, you know, if cancer cells do something that's a bit different from other cells in the body, sometimes that can be something we can target. So my group's interested in that. We are interested in the support systems for cancer research. So we study the provision of cancer samples to researchers and try and improve that. And the, where, where, do the, where do the cancer samples come from? They come from patients. So if a patient's diagnosed with cancer, 
one of the main treatments is surgery. Just cut the cancer out if you can. So that's important to treat the patient. But it's also important to work out what kind of cancer it is. So when somebody has an operation for cancer, that cancer will go to the pathology lab and they'll look at it under the microscope and work out, okay, what have we got here? And sometimes after that process is finished, there's tissue that they don't need anymore. But researchers, if they can use that tissue, they can then take those processes further and actually learn more about the cancer. So what we do is we take that sample and we store it away. And then we can make that available to scientists through a very carefully controlled process to make sure that the scientists are doing the right kind of research and they've actually been given permission to do this research. Yeah, because it's a lot of ethical That's right. And the patient needs to understand that their sample is going to be used for research. And so, you know, you can imagine that's a fairly complicated process so do, is it is it too broad a question to ask do most are most patients up for that yeah most patients are up for that yes if you ask them i would say probably about in our cohorts about 95 percent of people it's very rare for people to say no um, particularly when it's about children you know parents they often understand that the research may not help their child but most parents would do almost anything to prevent other people from going through the same the same experience that they're, they're going through at the time. So people are very altruistic. And then you work, you work in a team. So yes. who's in the team? Um, yeah. At the moment, there's myself. Um, I've got several sort of senior scientists that work with me. And I've got about three PhD students. Um, I've got a research assistant. So, you know, we're quite a diverse team. Um, we've got people that work on, you know, the different projects and they come with different areas of expertise. Um, one of the, my team members did a PhD with me years ago and has come back to work with me, which is great. Um, sometimes students also join me in that way. They work on a project and then they start, decide to do a PhD. So, um, yeah, look, I'm very fortunate. I work with a great team of people. And then what about, um, like, a, uh, not so much day to day, but like over, say, the course of a year, what kind of, like, you might get the new samples in and then you, you're kind of looking at them and, I don't know, uh, analyzing them somehow and then I guess that the data is recorded and then can you give us a broad overview as to what the process if maybe there's more than one process going on at the same time yeah there's there's actually quite a lot of processes and that often depends upon the project but for example in the case of the sequencing project we will obtain um, samples either from the kind of biobank that I was talking about so samples that have been stored for research or we'll actually consent patients and say you know, we we like to study your child. Um, you know, do you agree with that? We'll get those samples. They're sequenced. We will analyse the data. And then... What's, they're sequenced. That means that we will work out the order of bases within the DNA uh, of that particular patient. I, does this process start with a blender or not? Not really, no. No, no you don't nearly... Sometimes you need a blender, but not in these cases, no. But you need to get... Obviously, you need to get the cells out. You need to get the DNA out. You need to actually isolate the DNA. Mm. And then we send that DNA to a sequencing company. Oh, in right. In the past, we used to do it ourselves. But now, if you're sequencing very large amounts of DNA, um, that's quite a complex and expensive process. And most individual laboratories don't have the equipment for that. So we send that DNA away... We get the data back. My PhD student will analyse the data and she will work out... Which is a combination mm, of A's and T's, as I remember. A, T, C, G. C, G. Yes, various yes. combinations. So she will look at all of that data. She'll compare her results to previously reported sequences. She'll look for changes 
that might indicate that a gene has a mistake in it. And then we will take those results and we will discuss them in a multidisciplinary team. So it will be people like myself, scientists, doctors, doctors with expertise in treating children with cancer, with genetics, and together we will decide, okay, this result is a research result, this result needs to go to a patient. And then we will treat those results, you know, differently. And the, the results that go back to patients can be explained to the patient and their family. The research results we will report to the scientific community and the clinical community. In the form of research papers? That's right, in the form of research papers. Yeah, I like this idea that there's sort of multiple layers of teamwork going on. Yeah, there is, yeah. It's very, I mean, teamwork's really vital because none of us have a complete understanding of um, the systems in, in which we're working. And I think as researchers, we're constantly doing new things as well. So we're learning all the time as well. And what, um, is there a, a kind of professional collegiality or if that's what you would call yes, it? Yes, and that's one of the things I love the most about science. I mean, science is, scientists are just great people. And <laughs> well, I think <laughs> they so. Are, they're yeah. great, but, but I love it that, you know, you know, you're all working towards a common goal and Teamwork is really important and it is really great when you have that feeling of we're all together, we're working seamlessly, you know, that's one of the best feelings in doing science, I think. And I guess also that the idea of there's established protocols and me even measurement systems or certain ways of doing things so that that is translatable internationally or, you know, you don't have to, you don't have all separate little systems as kind of like a common grounding I suppose. Yes that's that's very true and certainly for genetics there are common reporting systems we will use the same we will be we will be comparing our results to the same sort of reference information that somebody in China or Yugoslavia or South America will be using so it is very important that universality that capacity to compare information all around the world is vital. So is that the um is that the foundation, this this idea of these biobanks? Is that the main research area that you're involved with? Like or is it Look, it's it's one of them. Um, the biobanks is that process of providing the samples to the researchers, but as researchers, we use those samples in our research ourselves, and I think that's why we're interested in the process and making sure it works properly. Um, even our analyses of lipid storage in cancer, for example, you rely upon, cancer samples you rely upon cell lines these are why you know that allows you the capacity to grow cells in the lab those cells originally came from cancer specimens um, and I also study I study the integrity of, of research as well um, so there would tell us more about this as cell lines they're like you've extracted the cells from a patient but then you've got it's like a little a little kind of growth or something that's that's happening in the lab like on a petri dish or something that's right yes so cell lines are usually many cell lines were actually established a long time ago 30 years ago 40 years ago oh and what, what do you mean 40 years ago that's yeah, a I long know. time ago i know it How is a long time work? ago well one of the features of cancer is their capacity to just keep replicating oh, right so normal cells will age they'll differentiate they'll kind of stop but cancer cells have managed to sort of turn that clock off so that they can just keep replicating. It's a little bit spooky. I... It's a bit spooky. And so we we kind of harness that capacity to derive cell lines where you can keep propagating a particular cell type 
And I guess, look, there's a lot of issues around cell lines, but the, the prices issues, are... Ethical issues, you mean? Or, no, no, more technical, technical issues. issues. Well, there's some ethical issues, but the technical issues are probably more acute at the moment. But in theory, if you derive a cell line, then people all around the world can be doing experiments in those cells. And so you can compare ah, right. your results. Right, because so, so, it's, like it's like a standard reference yes, point. Yes, it does, yes. Unfortunately, what can happen is these cells, of course, they're not... They're not machines, they're biological entities. And so what we know now is that cell lines over time can change. These are cancer cells, of course. They already have They're in that changes. territory of they're already ca- Yeah, that's right. They're already, they've already changed, so they can perhaps keep doing that. And so what we now understand is this theoretical idea of, you know, the cell line being the same, everyone studying the same thing. We now realise, well, that's not true at all. Yeah. So what's... What- what happens with that realisation? Mm. Is that kind of like, oh, whoops, we'll have to we'll start again? Or this is absolutely devastating? Or It, it, no? de- it depends. You know, so, what can sometimes happen, which is really probably at the extreme end of the problem, is when cancer cells can become contaminated with other cancer cell lines. And so you can start out thinking you're studying a breast cancer cell line, but you're actually studying something else and now, clearly that's pretty that's that's fairly serious it's not like you can just take it back to the shop and get a refund you have to no you've sort of that's ha- right. what do you do what does one do as a, a researcher in that situation well what one should do is essentially probably throw those results out okay what do you mean by uh, probably like people well that does do rely that, that does that does rely on the fact that people know that uh, yes, so you okay. know when you're growing your cells and you're just looking at them under a microscope, they might kind of look okay, but if you test them at a molecular level, you might understand that, well, actually, you're growing, say, two different cell lines together. Your eye may not tell you that. The molecular analysis will. You know, even though more researchers are doing these kinds of molecular analysis to keep an eye on their cancer cells, I don't think everybody's doing that. Mm. So it sounds like a bit of a quality assurance type loop where you kind of, like in terms of... uh, like building into the system a kind of quality check just to make sure that your cells are still good. Or, yeah, you know. more more journals these days are now demanding that if you're publishing results from cell lines, you must explain how you verified the identity of those cells. Wow. So yeah. that's now starting to be sort of written into publication policies. That tends to be, you know, that that's one way of reinforcing behaviour. Yeah, and I guess because there's a lot at stake just in terms of the integrity. Well, there is, yes, because there there would be thousands of papers in the literature that are unfortunately based on incorrect cell lines. And then how do the, like, mm, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a can of worms in a way where it's how do, how do researchers that are relying on the cell lines know necessarily that they've been using um, ones that are not reliable? I guess it's kind of even if it were exposed, how do they how does that information get back to them? Or um... yeah, usually through the literature, again through the scientific literature, but also journals, um, you know, like Nature and Science will be publishing commentaries around the problem of incorrect cell lines. So that kind of tends to diffuse the information more widely. You know, it's a little bit like the news, the scientific news in the news. Hey, you know, your cell line could be wrong. Maybe you should go and have a look at that. And that sort of thing. So what do all these teams of scientists around the world do when they might read a paper or they might, you know, it comes to their attention? Is it like panic stations or it's like, oh, oh dear, or, well, that's another 15 years down, down the tube? Or how do they It really, It really respond? depends. It's, it's, it's very, um, 
It depends. I remember when I was in France, actually, this was not exactly the same situation, but I remember I was in the library reading Nature, actually, and I read an article that sounded like it was exactly the same thing that the team upstairs were working on. And I went and spoke to my, um, I went and spoke to my supervisor and, look, it was a disaster. I have to say it was a disaster. And I remember, and then I went and told one of my friends in the laboratory about this and I'll never forget her face, you know. I mean, it is, it's years of, it's years of work, potentially. And if, if a team has been using an incorrect cell line for a long time, it's, it is very problematic. But still, I guess in that broader picture, it's definitely something that needs to be responded to absolutely absolutely i mean i think it's one of those situations where there's potentially a tension between the consequences for your own team and the consequences for the research and and i think it's part of our training that we should always understand that although things can have you know they can be significant for the team it's the bigger picture that's much more important Mm. i guess it does have another um i guess the context maybe is that uh, researchers are often driven to produce papers or do their research as part of a a system, you know, um, I guess deliverables or certain milestones need to be reached. And so if something like this occurs, it it can't be be received well by the management. No, 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 for sure. Um, You're right that there is certainly um, pressure to publish. And that's probably something that's reasonably universal all around the world. Some countries, that's more acute than others. But for example, in Australia, um, you know, your ability to attract, attract funding to support your work is partly based upon what you've produced. You need to show a funding body that you're a productive team, that you're a sure thing. You know, if somebody gives you some money, you're not just going to squirrel that away. You're actually going to produce some research that will be published and will be communicated. And so it's always, you know, predicting the future from the past. So if you have a major catastrophe where you find that some of your published results are not correct, you might have to retract those papers. Um, you know, that's, that's a serious business for the individuals, but also for the future of the team, particularly in the short term, trying to maintain funding for their research. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. I grew up on the farm you know you have uh yeah our property was fairly large so I had never been across all of it but nonetheless you we knew our farm better than anybody else and we need to look after it I think um so that it can support us but to do that you need to understand it and I there were parts of the farm that I knew like that back of my hand you know and I think that's a similar situation in science we have our intellectual areas in which we roam and we know those areas better than anyone else. But it's the same thing. We need to make sure that we look after that t- sort of intellectual territory so that we can draw something from it that's useful. So it's that kind of respect for knowledge within your field, and you need to defend that, I think, to some degree. Okay, I just instantly turned back to systems systems approaches to geography, U10 geography or something, inputs to a farm, outputs, processes. So in terms of, say, the farm, there would be, there's water, there's dams, there's cattle, there's um, feed, there's maintenance, there's equipment, there's a whole range of different things going on. Um, And so when we turn to 
say, a research system, you've got your intellectual aspects, processes, inputs. You, you mentioned earlier about PhD students doing uh, processes and that data then comes along um, and is used by yourself or, or your colleagues for deeper analysis, if you like. Um, and so maybe, yeah, where, where are you placed in terms of, do you want to improve the research systems? Or? Mm. Well, there's the physical reality of doing research that I think you've touched on, you know, the equipment, the, the environment you find yourself. Um, that's very important. But science is essentially, uh, you know, constructed through ideas and thought. And so we understand what we're studying through reading the literature and through synthesising that information. Yep. So if that information isn't right, we risk going off on tangents that are irrelevant. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big danger. You can control your environment within the lab. You can make sure that your equipment is properly calibrated. You can make sure that you're learning the right techniques, that you've got access to the best analytical systems. But what you cannot control is what other people produce. Yeah, and I guess in, a lar in that larger system, you're reliant on, on the information or data or findings mm. from those other players that might be overseas or they might be the next farm along. Yes, the and the reality is um, I think you, we individual scientists, we have no idea how the research was conducted, you know, almost even in the next lab, let alone in another country, because that's a process that's very, it's very specific and, you know, you could walk through a laboratory and you can see people doing experiments, but just from watching them, you've got no idea are they doing those experiments correctly or not. You mm. don't know. So yeah. chickens being social creatures, you've acknowledged that scientists do like to collaborate and they work in groups. Do you think this sort of, um, how, or how does that relate to solving this sort of issue or addressing it or, or teasing it out? Yeah. I think another thing that's happened probably over the last 10 years is there's a lot more emphasis upon collaboration within biology particularly. So if you want to publish in a really high-impact, you know, recognised journal, increasingly what the editors are looking for is, you know, they're looking for a, a, an advance, a scientific advance, but they're also looking for a degree of difficulty. So they, they tend to publish things that are hard and things become more... Um, I guess, you know, more complicated through collaboration and through combining the efforts of people who do very different work. That's also a challenge because often team A may not really understand what team B has done. So they'll be working on a common problem, but they're using such different approaches that team A will be going, okay, well, you're good at doing this, do this. But then really the two teams will not be in a position necessarily to critique what the other has done. Is that, you, you don't mean like proprietary processes? That, or no, just, no, just areas of technical or intellectual yeah. expertise Do because they they're so super... specialised that, and they're so deep sometimes that it's quite difficult to fully understand at a superficial level if you haven't spent years doing that. Yeah, do they not have like a, a kind of project manager type person? That... They will, but it's almost, it becomes increasingly difficult for that person to be completely intellectually across all of those quite diverse fields. So I guess this is with my thinking with the collaboration, where it might come in. Can't part of that collaboration be colleagues kind of checking, not so much checking in on each other, but at least, I don't know, uh, finding out more about the processes, at least enough so that then they can have that crossover understanding. I think that that's certainly the ideal. 
And I'm sure, I've got no doubt that that does happen a lot of the time. However. But I think at times, because of time pressures, oh, yeah. for example, need, you know, you're writing a grant, um, the grant's due here, you know that it would be really good to have this publication out by the time the grant's being written. So sometimes, you know, science does work to deadlines and sometimes those deadlines can push things along to a point where, you know, this kind of cross-checking, which really takes a lot of time, you know, maybe it's easy to just trust that everybody's done the right thing, you know. And so there's a lot of trust that, that happens in science as well. Yeah, I guess they've sort of there's certain protocols they might have established and then knowing that it, it's a high likelihood they're going to be adhering to those. Yes. But there's no guarantee. Yes. Well, sometimes even, you know, what you are talking about before, that process of questioning... Um, can sometimes also lead to the perception that there's a lack of trust in a team. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that can be... Yeah, that's, that's... not a good thing. So if you're sort of saying, well, hang on, have you done that right? And these people are saying, look, I've been doing this for 10 years. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, I guess it, it's complicated because this, it is, there's a, such a high degree of detail and over many, many years, as you're outlining, and then there's the intellectual expertise... Um, and so, but I guess as you're sort of um, telling us that it's not all kind of going swimmingly well. There's kind of you know there's serious consequences if it's if there's cracks in the these systems, and I guess it's kind of important to see where these might be addressed or improved in some way. Um, now I was reading this article that you brought to my attention that was delightfully comparing. Uh, re research processes with different approaches to agriculture, such as biodiversity, crop rotation, small-scale small farming, that type of thing. Um, and I, I quite like, I can see the, the kind of comparison between um, the different players and the different um, processes that need to go on. And so... Um, some of the stuff you were talking about earlier reminded me of this small-scale farming idea. Maybe like keep keep it more manageable, if that's the word. Is that something that you see as a good thing, or not necessarily? Look, I, th I think science needs to be ambitious. Oh yes. So we certainly need that ambition and we need that drive to be the best that we can be. But um, I think the particular article that you're referring to, which is the Sustainable Professor by Elizabeth Haswell. I think she's arguing for the need at the same time to take the time that's required to, um, you know, to come up with the great ideas, to reflect upon what you're doing. Um, if we are just relentlessly drive, driving towards outputs when perhaps not going to be doing the best science. So it's about slowing down sometimes to really have those deep insights in the great ideas rather than just relentlessly trying to you know, push more and more work out the door. So I, get, I do like this idea of a scientist reflecting. What does a scientist look like when they're reflecting? What are, they, what are their thought processes, maybe? Usually you're not at work. I'll have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. usually, uh, that's important because often work um, these days is, you know, responding to email, you know, meetings, various sorts of things. So but, certainly I mean, if I want to reflect, I'm usually doing that at home, actually. But you're busier than ever. Because you know you've you've kind of discovered a few um, aspects of uh, you know research integrity being um, being undermined, uh, as well as 
your your kind of regular research so you kind of got more and more and more things happening and I mean that's not likely to go away anytime soon so how do you find that time for reflection I think yeah it happens when I'm not at work I think and it's important to actually have some sort of downtime um, because the processes that give rise to ideas are often I mean I think that for me it's often subconscious so I'll be thinking about something and usually the idea will pop up when, you know, often in the morning when I'm kind of well rested, sometimes on the weekend as well. I think ideas that sort of percolate along and then they pop up and you kind of have to be ready to catch them when they're there because otherwise they disappear. Yeah, they, they're a little bit that way, aren't they? That's mm. their nature. Yes, ideas. you can't have an idea to order. You know, mm. someone could put me in a room and say, well, you know, come out when you've had an idea um i'll probably come out with an idea but i don't think it'd be very good no i guess it's it's sort of on a highly simplistic level it is a a form of creativity but it's not really because it's it's more considered than that it's not like it's this kind of crazy random idea it's sort of like a problem solving process or something i guess it's a bit of a mystery it is a bit of a mystery i that ideas are often come from drawing threads together. And another quote that I really like that I think is important is the seeing what no one else has seen. So well, seeing what seeing what everyone else is th- seeing, thinking what no one else has thought. Isn't that, that the process of creation though? It is, but it just takes time. Again, it's that percolation. Things sort of seep into your consciousness and all of a sudden you'll realise, hang on, you know, this is happening and you'll think, why didn't I see that before? Yeah. But that process, that process to get to that point just takes time, I think. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I do very much like the fact that it's from, not so much from the get-go, but it's like it's imagining a an approach and a, syst- a system that will be conducive to that happening rather than, oh, it's just this sort of random, how, you can't quantify ideas like you said, you can't lock someone in a room and say, come out with an idea, but you can factor in, like, you know, a bit of downtime or maybe a little bit of free exchange of, um, you know, collaborate, like conversation or, I don't know, um, I don't know. What do you think would work in terms of across the board for all researchers just to kind of, if, you, if we're kind of on board with this idea that reflection is important and valuable, how would you factor that in to, to kind of... Encourage. I think ironically, one of the ways to encourage creativity and ideas is actually the lack of pressure. That has been something that's been, I think, revealed in some studies that people, um, you know, if they have too much external pressure and too much, you know, worries, that you're not really in a good state to just come up with a random idea. You're more concerned about your survival, you know, immediate things. Um, So actually, I think recognising the process of having ideas as important and discussing ways to sort of hedge in time to allow people to do that. I think that's probably an important thing that we need to do more of in academia. Do you think it will, um, without being too cynical, do you think it will happen? Like, what are, the, what are the factors or obstacles against that? I think what we need to do is model that behaviour ourselves as academics. We need to talk about the process of having ideas and to value that. So I teach scientific writing once a year to my postgraduate students. And as part of that, I always tell people, you have to work out what works for you. You know, when you're writing, 
how do you get in that state of flow? How do you actually write effectively? And often it's different for different people. Yeah, it is. You know, I, so I do try and tell, I teach students to t ways of actively tapping into their creativity. But if you don't talk about that with people, people don't realise that it's, it's important. Yeah, no, I, I kind of um, can align myself to that thinking, definitely. And I guess it's, it's not always um, taken on board that the, these sort of processes are a part of scientific research. It's kind of... I think it's the sort of thing that everybody knows, but we don't talk about it, mm. you know, and that's Culturally. pretty silly, really, given that ideas are the absolute foundation of science and scientific advancement. Well, that's right. And I guess it's also, it's it's kind of occurred to me that you, you don't necessarily get those ideas at the beginning. It's maybe once you're in the process and you, you're kind of doing all the mechanistic processes, um, then midway through those, then the, your idea might come up and present itself. Well, that's right. You have to understand what's gone before you. You have to have read the literature and thought about it, and, and it's about that process of seeing the gaps the or gaps. seeing what hasn't been done. You know, I mean, what we're meant to be doing in science is what hasn't been done. Yeah. But that's sometimes it's a different process. You know, it's, it's like seeing the shadow or... You know what's not there, and I often will talk you've, to people you've about skating on being illogical here. <laughs> no. I always talk to my, you know, talk How to students. How can we see you know, something what, that's not there? Well, that's right, but we have to do that. We have to look at what's not there, what hasn't been done, and it's hard at the moment. We're writing a paper about that actually with one of my students, and it's really hard. I've said to my student, it's like writing a paper about shadows, how, all the things that aren't there. How would you? Um, how would you? summarize this approach to say one of your colleagues that was a little bit cynical and didn't understand wasn't on board you know with about the value of this sort of approach i mean i i think it sounds fantastic it's a it's it seems like it would be a really great um approach to encourage but not everyone would be on board and so i guess um yeah what would you say or what have you said to some of your colleagues to try and convince them that it's a, a valuable approach. Well, I think discovery happens where there is an absence of knowledge. You know, there are certain things in the world that we take, that we accept, for example, the sun rises in the east. No one's going to write a grant about that. We know it happens. You know, there's enough evidence to suggest that. But science should be looking where there are gaps or where we realise we don't know anything. And we can only do that by looking at what has been done before and then suddenly having that realisation, well, actually, no one studies this. We should do that. Of course, you, have, you need a justification. In the real world, you need a justification, but often that's not very difficult. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of if you tie it to a, uh, how that knowledge might be used or... Yes, yes. So an example in sort of my field is the human genome. So we have 20,000 genes in, a, in every cell of our body that make individual proteins, that make our cells. But as scientists, we only study a very small proportion of those genes. Most of those genes are not studied to any appreciable extent. Are they on a list of things to do or they're not even on, you know? Things end up on the list of things to do partly where there is money to do it. So there's more money available to study genes that we already think are important in biology or disease mm -hmm. than there is to just study studying all these genes where we don't really know what they do. I mean, presumably they do something because we've got them. But we just don't know that yet. Yeah, so how do you... Well, I guess who makes those decisions or who... who <laughs> That's the thing, yeah. I think, 
discussion. That's a, that's a big. It's a big discussion point. Um, lots of different people make those decisions, but I think it is important to consider the consequences of what could happen if we don't study these genes. What opportunities are we missing out on? What unintended consequences might be happening because of these understudied genes, which is something that my research integrity work is looking at. So we're going to wrap it up uh, very soon. So I'm intrigued by this idea of like tangential tangents, like areas of research where scientists might be not really looking in a particular area, but then they discover something um, and then that's then applied to some other area or, you know, so more of a free flowing approach to research and broad research. Could you just speak on that? Sure. Look, there's a couple of good examples that come to mind. Um, one, one is a technique called the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, which is now used diagnostically in, um, in labs and pathology departments around the world. It's used for forensics. It's used in research. That technique required the study of bacteria in hot springs because studying bacteria living in these extreme environments allowed the identification of an enzyme that's required for that technique. So, you know, you wouldn't think that those two things would normally go together. Another example is people studying jellyfish that are fluorescent allowed the identification of a protein that's now used to tag things in cells and is used in laboratories all around the world. It has really revolutionised our ability to see what's going on in cells. So you wouldn't, again, think that studying jellyfish would help you understand the fundamentals of cell biology. It's through our capacity to have a broad base of research and to look for these kind of connections that I think we make the really big advances. In this episode, I chatted with Jennifer Byrne, who is Professor of Molecular Oncology at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, Sydney. You can find out more information about this episode, including links to various research papers and articles, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.